Well, our purpose this morning is to work out whose children we really are. Uh, that is, whether we are God's children uh, or the devil's children. That seems a very dramatic way to uh, introduce things and put a cat amongst the pigeons, but nevertheless, that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, have you ever had to go somewhere in a convoy? In Maybe you came to Ingleburn in a convoy this morning. You know, it's a, you know, a long way away from anywhere real. And uh, uh, <laughs> Anyone travelled in a convoy uh, before? Uh, last time I had to do it was about a year ago, uh, speaking on a, on a church camp for another church. Uh, we went out bush uh, somewhere to a remote property in Belangelo State Forest to a property owned by a Russian. Um, I returned. Uh, so <laughs> but no one knew the way to this property except for one driver. Uh, and so we all met up on the Hume Highway at a truck's, truck rest stop and uh, we had to follow that one car uh, along the highway and then make the right turn and then along various dirt roads. And I don't know if you've ever been like that and you're nervous that you might get dropped uh, or get lost if you don't keep up. But imagine you're the leader of the convoy. Uh, you're confident that you know the way and that's why you're up front, that's why everyone else is there behind you. And as the leader, you've got to keep checking in the rear view mirror or you're not doing your job properly to make sure that everyone's taking the turns correctly and no one's dropped off the back. Uh, but imagine you're leading this convoy through the bush, through on the dirt roads, and you come to a fork in the road and uh, you take the right-hand turn because you know that's the correct way to where you're going. But you happen to look behind in your rear view mirror to make sure everyone's still there and you notice that the car three back takes the wrong turn, turns left instead. And every car behind them starts to go off that way with them. And then as you're deciding what to do, you look, you're still looking in the rear view mirror trying to kind of, uh, what do we do? And uh, the car two back peels off the road, runs through a fence onto someone's property, uh, does a sharp U-turn and then starts screaming back after the other group. And then the car right behind you, it just pulls over on the side of the road, hits the brakes, skids to a halt, starts beeping its horn and flashing its lights um, uh, and your passengers in your car, they really start giving you their opinions about um, your uh, skills. Um, what, what's going through your mind uh, at that time? Uh, maybe you're one of those people who thinks, those idiots, um, should, they should have just trusted me and followed me. I, I'm the one who knows where we're going. They should have just been behind. Uh, but I think most of us would, at that point, would start to seriously doubt ourselves, right? And think, uh, am I... Uh, really on the right track. Um, maybe I really don't know the way as well as I thought. Maybe they saw something, uh, a sign that said, don't go that way, bridge out. I mean, what, what have I missed? Uh, maybe we're the ones who are lost now all on our own. Have you ever had that kind of navigation feeling? Right? Yeah. Because that's exactly how the Christians who this letter of 1 John was written to that we're looking at today, that's how they felt. Because people were leaving the convoy. Verse 19 of chapter 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They didn't remain, they didn't continue with us. And these Christians are left on their own, suddenly wondering if, if they're going the right way. And so John writes to them, he writes to them to help them understand what to think about those who've left. 
And he writes them to give them reassurance about where they happen to stand with God. In fact, you see the last verse of our section that that we're looking at today from chapter 3, verse 10. We've been working through the letter, but chapter 3, verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Here's how you know. Here's how you tell the difference. And we're looking at it today to see what a true Christian looks like and to work out whether we really are one or not, to work out whose children we are, uh, uh, God's or the devil's. Because that really matters, right? It's not a laughing matter to think, oh, I'm with the devil. (laughs) Uh, It really matters. And if we discover that we're in the wrong family and on the wrong track and that we've somehow gone off course, it means that we can stop and turn around and get back on. Or if we discover that we're on the right track in the right family, we'll find great comfort and reassurance from that, won't we? That'll help us to keep going and not be uh, put off. Now I'm just going to grab that remote, because I'll need that. You might be thinking, well, who's this John guy, and why should we take his word on what a Christian truly is and isn't? Why is he such an expert? Well, he was one of the 12 apostles, uh, one of the 12 men who followed Jesus for three years, abandoned everything, his family, uh, and, and worked to go follow Jesus for the three years. He was walking around teaching and doing amazing things. Uh, and not only that, he was one of the inner circle. He was one of three. Him with his brother James and uh, their friend Peter, who were all fishermen. Uh, they were the inner circle of the 12 apostles. And not only that, when, uh, when Jesus was dying on the cross, when everyone else had racked off, John was the only one that stuck around. He spoke with Jesus while he was on the cross. And so he really was an expert on holding on when everyone else was abandoning Jesus And now it's years later and Christianity's been around long enough that people who'd once signed up and were were part of vibrant churches across Europe are now abandoning the faith. And he starts our section with uh, some very strong home truths about the people who've left. So they haven't just left to join another club down the road. See what he calls them in verse 18. It's very strong language, isn't it? He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Who are these Antichrists? Verse 19, they are those who went out from us. They did not really belong to us. Now you might think that the Antichrist is a fairly big deal to throw into a local church dispute. Uh, I don't know where you get your ideas about the Antichrist from. Uh, Perhaps your mind goes to this guy. Um, or here he is grown up. Uh, anyone know who that is? It's Damien Frost from the Omen movies. Uh, they started in the 70s. I think the last one was 2007. Anyway, so uh, they've been making them for a long time. Um, but an American couple are on holidays in Rome and she's about to give birth. In fact, she goes into labour in Rome and uh, uh, there's a priest who switches babies. Uh, with this anonymous baby, uh, this guy, uh, who turns out no one really knows where he comes from. And uh, as he grows up, well, it's a horror movie. <laughs> uh, he can kill people with his mind. He can cause car accidents and, and all kinds of nasty stuff. 
And uh, he's almost like Voldemort in Harry Potter in terms of what he can do. He can kill people and bring disasters with his will. Uh, and uh, that's, he's the Antichrist, as the movie turns out. And that's the kind of classic Hollywood view of the Antichrist, isn't it? But that idea doesn't come from the Bible. The Antichrist isn't like that. In fact, the word Antichrist is only used uh, by John in this letter of 1 John and in the follow-up letter of 2 John. And the only other thing that comes close is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul writes about someone called the man of lawlessness. And without all the excitement of Hollywood, uh, we hear about a person who will focus opposition to Jesus Christ and lead people astray from trusting and following. He will be anti-Jesus. He is anti-Christ in that sense. He'll even go so far as to set himself up to be worshipped in Christ's place. And he's tied in 2 Thessalonians 2 to the return of Jesus. The man of lawlessness will be revealed and then Jesus will return, bringing him to nothing, going to destroy him. But what John's saying is that that kind of opposition to Jesus isn't restricted to a future time that we're still waiting for. In fact, there are not just one Antichrist, there's one spirit of Antichrist he talks about in chapter 4, but there's lots of instances of Antichrist and that they're, they're all joined together. And that's because, he says, we are in the last days. We're in the last days now, not because 2019 was suddenly the year they all started and, you know, the signs are there and the right, you know, this army's gone here and so that means Jesus will be back on May 20... No, that's already been. That'll be October 21st. Um, No, we're in the last days because we're in the time between Jesus' death and resurrection and he's coming again. That's what the Bible means by the last days or the last hour, as John puts it here. And that's because the last days are about the judgment of God on human sin and also the creation of God's new kingdom, right? The new age that's starting. It's not this part of this world. And it all started, the human sin was judged on the cross. The new kingdom, that Jesus reigns as king, was started Okay, and it's all going to be uh, sorted out when he returns again. It will reach its culmination. And so we're living in the last days. And he says that's the time in which we live. And you can recognise that. You can recognise that we're in the last days. How? Well, because of these antichrists. But if it's in that time that we live, the question is, how would you recognise one of these antichrists if you came across one? Or in chapter 3, how would you recognise a child of the devil? Would they look like this? You know, and you're like, that's, that's them. Oh, what you? Uh, no, but John says you can absolutely recognise an antichrist. In fact, he gives three signs that someone is an antichrist. Um, the first sign is that they've left the convoy. He says, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. I mean, some people suggest that uh, you can be a Christian and not be part of a church in any way, shape or form. Uh, and like the best lies, it's, only a, it's got a half-truth in it. Right? It's a half-truth because 
it picks up the true statement that no amount of religiousness can make someone a Christian. No amount of bowing or scraping or candle lighting or rituals or fasting, nothing like that. A Christian is not someone who can earn their way to God by religious actions. And so in that sense, uh, going to church does not make you a Christian, right? It can't do any more than standing in a garage does not make you a car, right? Anyone tried to become a car? Walking there? It doesn't work, does it, right? And so, of course, going to church doesn't make you instantly a Christian. That's the half-truth. But the lie is to think that we don't need each other to keep going as Christians. Because just like a burning twig that's uh, snuffed out quickly when it's taken out of the bonfire, we think it can, we can have our own private fire and it just, it's going to go out. And so it is that a Christian's going to wither and die without other Christians around them which is what church is. The Bible's consistent in the fact that church is essential for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the church is pictured as a, as a body and, and all of the parts need each other to survive and to thrive. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we're, we're, we're told that we must not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You mustn't do it uh, as believers. Uh, what are you got to do? Well, you've got to meet together more and more frequently as you see the day of Jesus Christ approaching and you do it to, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds and, and to encourage each other, which doesn't just mean to make each other feel good and loved and accepted, which is a wonderful thing, but that's not what encouragement in the Bible is. Encouragement is to give courage to, it's to give strength to, so that they won't drift away as Christians and they won't let you drift away as a Christian and drift away from Christ which is exactly what we'll do without other believers around to help us and love us and keep us accountable. And so church is essential. Why had the people in John's day left the convoy and given up? Well, many reasons, presumably, but uh, I think for a lot of them, it would be the reasons John outlined in the section just before this that we looked at last week. That is, they've been seduced, seduced by the world and by the things of the world. He talks about just before the, the cravings of sinful man and the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does. I mean, isn't that why people walk away? Because other stuff's better, more tempting and brighter and shinier. And I, many of us know the great sadness of seeing friends and family give up on Jesus and his people chasing some temporary fantasy that could never deliver and will not last. I can think with great sadness about um, lots of people through the years, uh, the, the guy who married the girl I took to my formal, <laughs> um, Christian guy, uh, or so we thought at the time, and then uh, wanted to explore different forms of spirituality, and then wanted to explore the bodies of different women and uh, ended up, they had a child, and then he, just after they had a child, he was gone, abandoned her after he'd made them move to the far country, uh, and so ruined several people's lives in the process. Or the lady I knew at another church who heard Jesus' words, no one who loves brother or sister or daughter or son or father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and who said, well, then I refuse to love Jesus because I will not love him more than my kids. And in the end, she uh, 
she ruined not just her own faith but her children's as well. Or the young man I can think of who, who started chasing money and fast cars and uh, went down the, uh, the big career path and making big money and drifted away like so many others, seduced away because they, they just love this world too much and the things of it. But sometimes it's not seduction. Sometimes it's fear, isn't it? Fear of being thought a fool or being excluded or worse. How do you pick an antichrist? Sign number one, they abandon Christian fellowship in the church. But that's not the only sign. In fact, it's just a symptom of, of something deeper that's going on underneath. The second sign of an antichrist that John gives is in verse 22. He says, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. And I think now we're getting to the heart of the problem, aren't we? The real issue is they just don't believe Jesus is who he is. They deny him. What, what is it that they deny about Jesus? They deny that he is this Christ. What does that mean? I, mean, I guess a lot of people think it's just Jesus' surname. You know, he's Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph and Mary Christ or... But that's not it. Um, no, Christ is a title. It's a title from the Bible. It's a, it's a Greek word uh, that's a translation of a, of a Hebrew word, which is Messiah. He is the Messiah. And what the Old Testament prophets have been saying for over a thousand years before Jesus came was that God was going to send this Messiah who would, who would be a superhuman leader who would overthrow all of Israel's enemies and, and he would regather God's earthly people from the four corners of the world and even include in people who, who didn't even descend from Israel. He would, he would be so wonderful. And he would establish once and for all the perfect reign of God. The Christ is God's promised king and saviour. And in some of the prophecies, it seems like he's a man. In other ones, he's pictured almost like God himself. In fact, he's even referred to as the son of God. And Christianity's central claim is that Jesus is that Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And what John's saying is that someone is an antichrist if they deny that. That's the crux of the matter, that Jesus is the Christ. And, and it really does matter. Because he says that to deny that Jesus is the Christ is to deny God himself. And that's because if it's true that Jesus is God's son if it's true that he is the king over God's kingdom, if it's true that he is the one who saves people for God's kingdom and the only one, then without him, we've got nothing. You cannot have God if you don't have Jesus. Many people like to think of themselves as knowing God or as spiritual people in touch with the divine, but, but they refuse to acknowledge that Jesus um, is the only way to connect with God. And because of that, they don't have God at all. They believe lies. Jesus said the same thing himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sounds all right up to that point. You can get to God through Jesus. But then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way to God. Or in their first reading, the apostles, after you know, there have been thousands with Jesus that day. They gather, they flock to him to hear his teaching and it had been a hard teaching 
and thousands have walked away. And Jesus said to them, are you, you going to leave too? And the 12 looked at him and said, where else have we to go when you alone have the words of eternal life? You're the only one who can give us that. There is nowhere else to go. And so they hung on and they would not leave even when thousands of others have walked away from Jesus that very day. The third and final sign that John gives that someone's an antichrist is in chapter 3. It's, it's in the way that they live. See, having abandoned the church, having denied Jesus, what do they do? Well, they do whatever they want. They do it however they want with whoever they want. And that is, they, they live a life that's completely oblivious to God and to his ways. And you can see it in chapter 3 and verse 7. He says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as God is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Or come down to verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister, that, which I take it means Christian brothers or sisters, uh, first and foremost at least. And, and it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you deny that Jesus is the King and Saviour, then there is absolutely no reason to want to listen to him and to live his way. Right? And what does that lifestyle look like? Are we talking about you know, being the worst of humanity, being, you know, being with the dogs, you know, doing things like murder and theft and adultery that are illegal and patently immoral? Is that what we're talking about? If you don't have Jesus, you're going to have to live this completely uh, ridiculous profligate life. No, that's not it. That, that's not how John defines sin. It's not how the Bible defines sin. You come back to verse 4, what does he say? Sin is? Sin is lawlessness. It's lawlessness. It's living without rule. It's, in fact, making up the rules yourself. It's living for yourself and for your own goals and glory, which you might be a completely nice neighbour and, and all the rest and have a normal life, it's not, but you're still living for yourself lawlessly without God in charge. And he says to live that way is to be a child of the devil and not a child of God. He's not mincing his words, is he? It's absolutely clear, black and white. If you go this way, you are a child of the devil. Why a child of the devil? Well, because it's believing the lies that the devil told when he led humanity astray in the first place. You know, Adam and Eve in the garden, there's the, the fruit that they're not supposed to eat, the knowledge of good and evil. He says, no, 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 you live for yourself. You, you decide for yourself what's good and evil. It's great. You know, God doesn't care. Uh, he's, he's not going to do anything about it anyway. And you know what? God's just jealous because he knows you're going to be better than him, right? So just do it. And they gave in as we give in and they became and we become his children because we believe his lies. He's the father of lies and we believe them, we become his children. So that's the signs, pretty negative sermon so far, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> that's the signs that someone's an antichrist. It gets better from here. Uh, they abandon Jesus. They abandon his people and they live how they want. So what's a Christian then? Well, it's the opposite, right? Uh, it's someone who knows and loves Jesus. They know that he is the Christ. He is the King and Saviour and they trust him and they love him and they've given themselves to him. They're on his team. And because of that, they want to connect with and encourage and stick with God's people, his family. 
And finally, they want to live for him and love him and please him in everything, in every way. But that might raise one really dark question for you. And I know that this is something that I've had several conversations with lately. I know it eats away at several of us. And I don't know all the guests, maybe it eats away at you as well. That is, what if I think, I know that Jesus is, is Christ and, and I trust him, I think I do. And, and I really do want to be part of his family, I'm trying. But, but there's just some sin. There's something that keeps dragging me down. This, maybe it's someone in my life, but there's this thing, whether it's an addiction or whether it's something that's just evil and I'm so tempted and I can't get rid of it. And, and, and I've been fighting it, I've been trying, but it, it seems to be winning and, and I want to be done with it, I'm tired, but it just has me. And perhaps you know already what that issue is. And maybe you feel the sting and the guilt right now of whatever it is. Doesn't John make it sound like if I really was one of Jesus' people, then I could defeat it? I'd be able to overcome it just, just like that? After all, verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And if I continue to sin, then I don't know him. Is that your thought? You have those dark moments? Well, there's two things I want to say to encourage you uh, about that subject. The first is that John's talking about sin in our passage as lawlessness, right? You're in that camp, the child of the devil camp, if you've given up and you don't care and you've abandoned God's ways. He's not talking about those who've got an awareness of their own struggles and failings and and who want to fight and to do better. He's talking about those who've given up and given in. That's the child of the devil. Someone who's either abandoned Jesus for their sin or someone who never really cared in the first place. That's the first thing. The second thing is that John has already said in chapter 1 that no one's ever, you know, no child of God's ever going to live sinlessly perfect in this world. It's just a lie that you could do it. You cannot and you will not do it. I cannot and I will not do it. Not even the greatest Christian can do it. Chapter 1 and verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If I'm saying I'm perfect, I'm better than all you, I'm really a child of God because of it, the truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So he's already prefaced the question, because that was in chapter 1, it's just that we happen to be doing in little pieces that we might be confused. In fact, that's the reason that we need to rely on Jesus and not on ourselves. It's why he came and why he needs to save us. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He has done it all. He has paid on the cross, uh, he says at the start of chapter 2. He is our advocate with the Father. He pleads our case when we struggle. He died for my sin. And, and not just to pay the penalty for it, although he's paid the penalty for it. He's borne the wrath of God. But he did it also to cleanse me so that I can start to change and fight against the evil that's in my own heart. He didn't die for me to give me a license to sin. Hey, Jesus paid. Let's go do what we want. Woohoo! Yeah. Uh, he died for me because I needed saving from myself and from the judgment that's coming when he returns. And so as a Christian, I've got to keep reminding myself, as I heard someone wise once say, I may not be the man that you want me to be. 
And I may not even be the man that I want to be. But I thank God that I'm not the man I used to be. Right? I may not be the man that you want me to be. I may not be the man I want to be. But I thank God I'm not the man I used to be. I'm a work in progress as all, all of God's people are. As a new person, forgiven and remade in Jesus, you know, I'm to pursue the life he wants me to live. One of love and righteousness and joy and faithfulness, persevering with Christ and his people to the end. And to help them who he's writing to and to help us, John loads into the passage three incredible things to give us great comfort and reassurance if we, if we do trust Christ and we're part of his convoy. And I think you need to take these things to heart because they, they really are precious and they're promises that give us great hope and joy. The first one's this, that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives with us. Uh, it's, it's not some super Christians or some who've been there for a while and taken a next step. All Christians have the Holy Spirit with them. That, that's what he means when he talks about the anointing that we've received. He mentions that in verse 20 of chapter 2, but in verse 27 he brings it home just how incredible it is to have the Holy Spirit. He says, as for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you and you don't need anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things and that anointing is real. It's not a figment of your imagination. It's not, you know, some woo ghostly thing. You know, it's not counterfeit. Just as it, ta- uh, it is taught you, remain in Christ. Here what he's saying, the Holy Spirit is God with you, in you, helping us, guarding us, especially helping you to discern the truth from the lies of those who try and lead you astray. It's a great comfort. The second great comfort and reassurance is in chapter 3 and verse 1. It's about the kind of relationship that we have with God. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Lavished, I think, might be one of my favourite words. When I think of lavished, I think of cake. Cake with thick, delicious icing that's just, it's lavished on, right? You know, the, oh. Anyone want some cake? Anyway, uh. If you're part of his convoy, then God has lavished his love on you. God is not some great policeman in the sky just watching and waiting for his child to fail. He's not there hoping that you'll do something that means he can kick you out of his family, right? He's not some monster. He has poured out his love for you. If you're with Jesus, God's disposition towards you is with complete, adoring, sacrificial love. That's why he gave his son up for you in the first place. And that's why he's with you now by his spirit. You are his. So much so are you his that he is proud to call you his child. Yeah? His Nikki, my daughter. Not my daughter, God's daughter. Yeah? <laughs> um, my sister. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, he's Cheryl, my daughter. He's, he's Mitchell, my son. Yeah? It's, isn't that reassuring? Isn't that great? 
And the final great comfort and reassurance is, is what we will one day be when Jesus calls us home. It's in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Dear friends, now we are the children of God. We are the children of God already. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is our future if we belong to him. That is the joy that will be ours. I will still be me, but I'll be a wonderfully and utterly perfected and transformed me. Not so as to be some Adonis that everyone's going to stare at in wonder and lust after and glorify. I mean, I'm pretty close to that already, so. Uh, (laughs) uh, No, I, I will be someone who is completely remade and fit for him who saved me and who loves me. I'll be done with the struggles against my own sin and weakness. I'll be done with the failing and I'll be done with the falling. I'll be finally be what he is already at work creating now, though there's still a long way to go. I will be a truly loving and righteous person who loves him and serves him perfectly in glory and joy. And so what do I do now? What should we do now? Press on. Stay in the convoy. I'll stick with Jesus, who's the Christ, trusting him because he's the saviour. I'll stick with his people and seek to encourage and build them up and stay on track. And I'll work on myself to put to death the things that he hates, which I'm learning to hate in myself, and and to live for him and to live for what he loves as my king. And and I'll take the reassurance of that he offers me, that I have his spirit to help me, that I am his beloved child who he lavishes his love on, and that I have a future in hope and joy in perfection with him. So whose child are you? Whose child are you? There's only two families. And that's how you recognise a child of God as opposed to a child of the devil or an antichrist. What, what could the world possibly offer that's better than that? Right? Even if it's something really good now, it's going to fade, it's going to break, it's going to perish. If you don't know him yet and haven't joined the convoy, if you haven't come into the family, you're very welcome to join on in. There's always room for more cars. But it starts with recognising Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the Christ. He is the King and the Saviour who died for you, who loves you, and who will return in judgment, and he will claim his kingdom. Are you going to be part of it? Whose child are you? I'll pray. Father, these are strong words of warning and of encouragement. Our Father, we do pray that for those of us here who are part of your family already, that you would hold on to us, that uh, we wouldn't go astray, that you would help us to keep choosing to do what is right and to love you and your ways and to fight that sin that we know is in our lives and that struggle that's there. We pray that we might stick with your people, that we might be an encouragement and might give others strength 
that we might spur each other on to love and good deeds and that we'll allow them to encourage us and strengthen us and spur us on as well. For those of us who now there's, there's questions about where they stand or they don't know or they know they're not in that family yet, we pray, please, that you would grab hold of them and see these incredible promises and we pray that today might even be the day that they become part of your family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.